Welcome back to Over To You. Today we're in the world-famous Abbey Road Studios, and my guest is the reason for me wanting to start this series. He's a multi-award winning writer and producer. The records that he's been involved with have sold more than 500 million copies to date. He's the chairman of the Songwriters Hall of Fame, and he could very easily battle Dave Grohl for the title of the nicest man in rock and roll. His name is Nar Rogers, and Rolling Stone magazine once said the full scope of his career is still hard to fathom, and I'd like to welcome him to the podcast. <laughs> Thank you, man. Wow. <laughs> All that, huh? Yeah, right. Cool. I mean, there's 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 a million more things that we could touch on, but uh, I wanted to keep it relatively short. Thanks. So, I don't think that you need any further introduction. But for those of you that are listening that don't know who Nile is, then perhaps a, a hand over to you on a basic introduction would be great. Um, yeah. Well, <clears throat> it goes back a while now. I uh, started my professional career with Sesame Street and then went from Sesame Street to the Apollo Theater, and then quickly, uh, quickly, ha, in music land, it's quick. But in a couple of years, I formed my own band called Chic, and uh, and our first record was a platinum record. Uh, basically, I give it platinum because we went gold on two different labels. And then uh, my second record was gold. Third record was gold. Uh, third record was um uh, we are family with Sister Sledge. Fourth record, Chic um, went gold. Fifth record, multiple platinum, um, and then worked my way up to Diana Ross, David Bowie, Duran Duran, In Excess, Hall and Oates, Mick Jagger, and so on and so on and so on to Madonna, to Daft Punk, and Avicii, and the modern world. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's like nothing. That's just serious some discography. of the stuff. Yeah, it's amazing if you look back through your discography on paper, it just is seemingly endless and, uh, and, and remarkable that at this point, I think there's, there's still such a sense of sincerity in what it is that you're doing, which uh, I think in this day and age isn't so, uh, isn't so blatant in the modern musician that that, that level of, of hunger and sincerity and just watching you in sessions is, is still so blatantly obvious that your drive to continue to want to create to, to the utmost degree is is very much visible and very much present. Uh, so it's always a treat being able to watch you in the studio and do what you do. Thank you, man. You know, you know, you happened to catch me. Um, you got me at really, really great times where it was, um, the sessions were relatively small and focused, you know, Anderson Pack and Bruno Mars and, um, and then now watching me um, do, do my thing with, um, you know, just the number of artists that I've worked on over the last few weeks and just cleaning up my guitar tracks and soloing and putting on the last, you know, bits of uh, what we call ear candy. Right. Um, so you got to see me in an environment where it's, it's a little bit more personal as opposed to a few weeks ago I was conducting, you know, big symphony orchestra and that sort of looks like... Um, that looks like the typical producer's job, but now you get to see me as a musician, as a, a composer, and you know, that, that side of me, which is cool, which is fun, because you see how much I really love doing it. Yeah, I, I, and that's exactly it. And actually, the, the first time I met you, we were playing a show together in, I want to say it was either Sweden or Norway, Oya Festival, and Chic were headlining. And I remember at that point, I, I saw you, you were, you were sitting by the pool and you were just kind of hanging out and it was a very, very iconic moment of everybody kind of being like, all right, this is happening. And, uh, <laughs> I remember coming over to you and I asked you if I could shoot your portrait 
to which you responded in a very humble way that it was absolutely fine, but you wanted to strike a pose, which for me was an even better situation than I could have hoped for. Uh, and then getting to watch you play that evening was such a remarkable thing because I grew up with my father playing me so many of these records. So to, to get to see it live legitimately right. uh, was a really amazing thing. And then I thought, okay, well, you know, I think we actually came on stage uh, came on stage for that show. Like you know, you always right, yeah, a couple we of do the, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, I, the 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 bum rush at the end right. of good times, which is fun. It's my, like my most fun thing. Yeah, and I mean, I distinctly remember that moment and thinking, all right, well, that was great, but now I feel like I need to have this conversation with you. Nothing happened, and then strangely enough, I walk into the studio a couple of years ago with with Anderson Pack, and we're in the session together, and that was when I suddenly had this moment where I thought the level to which you tell stories and the extent of experiences that you've had are one, uh, 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 put me in a position where I was on the, the ride home thinking, I need to document this to some extent. Um, so there are a couple that really stood out to me. One of which was uh, early days in New York, mm -hmm. Black Panthers, which led you to meet Afini Shakur. Yes. Uh, and uh, one of the stories that I believe that you told me, and correct me if I'm wrong, but was that you were in a club in Los Angeles and I think a single had just come out. Everybody was having a good time. And suddenly the, the vibe changed very, very dramatically where uh, a bunch of what was seemingly thugs came in and started wrecking the place. Do you know which story I'm okay, talking about? So you got it a little bit, a little bit wrong. Okay, cool. The, the, the club was actually in New York. Okay. Um, and it was a club called Wilson's. And um, the owner was a woman named Debbie Wilson who discovered, um, oh God, what's his name? He blew up. He really blew up. Uh, I can picture him now. Um, ah, name escapes me real quick. But anyway, um, it, and so uh, I, I got a phone call uh, and I wasn't in the club at the time okay. when um, I guess um, these young gentlemen were wiling out, as they call it back in New York. And, um, and it was Tupac. And um, and um, it was Tupac and his crew. I didn't know any of the members of his crew, but of course I've known Pac uh, basically since he since he was a child, uh, because uh, Afini and I were in the same uh, Harlem branch of the Black Panther Party, um, and my dearest dearest friend to this very day, uh, Jamal Joseph, um, is Pac's godfather. So. Um, there were two interesting sides to Pac. There was the, the side that felt, you know, like a fatherless child and sort of um, collected these sort of romantic father figures who were, you know, very charismatic in, in the hip-hop game. And, and also there was the, the, the community servant, the, the Black Panther. And it was incredible. As soon as I walked in, Pac saw me and the in the vibe changed instantly. It was incredible. Not only was he apologetic to Debbie Wilson, but I mean, um, you, you know, like apologizing to people in the house. Um, maybe maybe even bought drinks for everybody. That that part of it, I don't know. But it turned from um, chaos to love and servant other people, and it made me so proud of Pac because um, the one thing that people always say about uh, ex-Black Panthers is that they can always tell them by the way they treat uh, children and the elderly because that's basically who we work for. Right. Yeah, that's somewhat the story that I remember, although, you know, it was a couple of years ago and I think I 
patched in the, uh, the holes. <laughs> you made it a little bit more romantic than perhaps, it was. <laughs> but uh, I, I distinctly remember it and just thinking, wow, which tends to be my immediate response to the majority of stories that you tell. And I think anybody that knows you knows that a session with you can end up with a with a two-hour conversation about things that have got nothing to do with the session. <laughs> yeah. But I, every single person just sits and listens. And uh, I think some of the most interesting were Prince and Rick James. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Rick James one's more so because, as many people know, Rick James was really the wildest guy in rock and roll, full right. stop. Uh, and I distinctly remember you talking about how, in many instances, I think you you managed to swerve a number of uh, of cases that that, <laughs> <laughs> that could have been problematic. Well, uh, see, first of all, uh, what, what, here's here's the interesting thing, and maybe uh, you know, I'm 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 trying to put my finger on it. Maybe it's because I'm a little bit older. I'm trying to I'm trying to figure it out because I don't know what's in the other person's head, but. I know that um, my relationship with Rick was incredible. I mean, it was just, we were so tight. Uh, Every time I saw him, uh, regardless of how crazy, wild, and chaotic the scene was, once he and I got together, it was like nothing but love. You can look on the internet and see how many times we jammed together. I remember once we wound up jamming in front of 70,000 people. <laughs> it's like, you know, yo, now nah, come up here, and bring your guitar and let's jam. You know, you're doing a show and next thing you know, we're jamming in front of 70,000 people. Um, you know, uh, and and Prince, my, my relationship with Prince was so... Um, I don't even know how to explain it, man. It was um, the the most peculiar, respectful, wonderful relationship that I could think of to have with a musician because I could see that he was sort of one way with most people, but with me, he was so normal. It was incredible. It was almost frightening how normal my relationship was with Prince. Um, uh, we would we'd have conversations uh, that were, uh, you know, a lot of them were esoteric. A lot of them were sort of, you know, like, you know, oh, wow, over the top man kind of things. But most of them were fairly straight ahead and very normal. So much, so normal that even people around him would feel a little bit uncomfortable because all of a sudden this strange new prince would appear and we'd be, you know, just like regular dudes talking about regular stuff. I think that, again, is somewhat what I remember you speaking about was that that, uh, when you and he were conversing, there was this sort of readaptation of of the enigma of Prince, which sort of somewhat humanized him to the other people, which they found, as you say, somewhat alien. (laughs) And and that's an amazing factor, I think, especially for someone like him who, uh, you know, from, from the general public's perspective, was always very much just prince like there was nothing more than it was like prince is is what you got and and that was it and he was consistently in character the entire time right 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 and you know we live in a day and age now where i feel as though the the character creation of artistry isn't as strong as it once was i mean you've got people like lady gaga who i think is fantastic and she truly portrays that character so well Mm -hmm. but but she can also be known as as stephanie and Mm -hmm. i feel like there is that that means of disassociation between the character but with someone like prince I, I I mean I never met the guy but to me it's like Prince is Prince 100% yeah. of the time at 100% and yeah. so to hear that there was this this character break for specific people such as yourself is a remarkable thing I think for someone like me to hear yeah I you know it's funny I think um, 
and, and, and I say this with a massive amount of humility, I really, really think that it's respect because um, in a strange way, I'm just as weird as they are, but they don't know that. So when they're with me, um, I guess they feel comfortable. Um, y- you know, uh, I mean, I, I just wish you could see how normal Prince and I were together. It was shocking to people. Um, uh, I, I'll give you a great example. We were once doing a show where I hired him for the show. I paid him a million dollars and uh, it was great, fantastic. And, uh, and I asked him for one little thing. I, I asked his manager at the time, I said, uh, excuse me, could you please tell Prince to put this thing there? All right, I won't even tell you what the thing was, but I told him to put this thing there. And the manager at the time was uh, terrified. He wouldn't, he wouldn't do it. He says, I'm not telling him to do that. I said, no, ask him to do that. You don't have to tell him to do it, ask him. Tell him, Niall would like you to do this. And he would not do it. I couldn't believe it. It was, dude, I'm giving you a million dollars. You won't do that. And I walked over to Prince's uh, trailer and I asked him to do it. And he was like, oh, no, of course. Like instantly. It was like not even not even an issue. It was the most normal, oh, of course, sure. And uh, and I kept thinking to myself, I wonder why that was such a big deal to the manager and it was such a little deal between Prince and myself. It's a non-issue. And I, and I think that that's what I truly uh, treasure about my relationship with most artists is that with with me, I get their humanity. I get the true person. I, there's no, they don't have to act for me. They don't have to put on any facade. We can just be people. Um, like the story with Pac, you know, he could just be Pac. He could be son of a Fanny Shakur. He could be a, a son of a Panther. And, you know, it was, it was great. Yeah, actually that, very much leads on to what I wanted to say in regards to the nature of humility in artists of your stature, which uh, I've been very lucky to have, have spent some time with people at that level. And what I tend to find is that the more that you've achieved, it, it tends to induce further humility in, in your general practice with other people. I tend to find that those who are at a lesser level of achievement have this wild, untamed ego. But the people who I've met who have you know, remarkable accolades and things of that nature tend to come with this level of humility. And I, I wondered if you had a perspective on that or as to why that might be. Um, I, I can't really speak for others uh, because, as I said, I don't know what's in their minds, but I know what's in my mind. I'm grateful. I am grateful as hell. Um, I'm 66 years old and I get to make records um, with some of the most talented people in the world. I get to work with people like just a couple of days ago, like Andrea Bocelli, from from Andrea Bocelli to you know Anne Marie <laughs> yesterday, right. you know, and and rudimental. I mean, it's like the 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 scope of my musical life is as big and as grand as it could ever be. Um, it's all the things that I imagined and hoped for as a child because I started as a classical musician and you know now the fact that I get to conduct symphony orchestras um, I get to do film scores I get to do video games I get to do uh, live gigs and we're still a completely live band I mean we're one of the few acts that don't use you know 
you know, Pro Tools or backing tapes or click tracks or any of that stuff. Uh, you know, we just go out there old school R&B and just play dance music. And um, it's, I mean, who, who, could, who could have it better? I mean, it, you know, as a composer, as a person that creates something from nothing, like yesterday we walked into this studio with Rudimental and, and there was nothing. We had no idea. And within 20 to 30 minutes, we not only had an idea, but a great idea. And within a couple of hours, it turned to an incredible composition. And by the end of the night, we were all just like floating on a vibe, like, oh my God, I can't believe that we got this track. And it's that amazing. And, you know, I mean, these guys have had a bunch of number one records. And the fact that we can impact each other's lives like that just makes us humble and grateful. Humble because of the fact that you got the opportunity to do this, to create this magic, and grateful because, man, it could be gone in an instant, in a flash. And and we even talked about that. We talked about, you know, how we got our record deals, how we got to be in the position where we could come into a place like Abbey Road and have Studio One at our disposal. And, you know, it just it was unbelievable. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think that's a very beautiful thing also to hear from the perspective of someone in a position such as yourself where it can be broken down for people who are who are coming up through the ranks and perhaps not necessarily understanding the the necessity of, of employing humility in their practice, namely based on the fact that it is a sense of reflection. It's looking at what the journey was that you originally wanted to, to take and ultimately reviewing how far you came namely through the help of a number of other people which i think is another factor that people forget um so i know that we're somewhat short on time yeah i wanted to touch somewhat on on bowie as this is the way in which i discovered you through the records that my father played me um one of them was an excerpt that i read actually which whether or not this is legitimate you'll be able to tell me i'll tell you in a second <laughs> but uh there's a there's an excerpt that said that uh, Bowie once came to you in an apartment, showed you a photograph of little Richard in a red suit getting into a bright red Cadillac saying, Niall, darling, this is what I want my album to sound like. It's exactly, exactly perfect. Um, what had happened is uh, he and I had met. We decided that we wanted to work together. And before we wrote a single note of music, we went on this exploratory mission where we went to, you know, this was well before the internet. So the only way to hear the music was to be in the presence of the recording, be it uh, a record or a tape library or something like that. So we went to the Library of the Performing Arts at Lincoln Center. We went to people's houses who were known for having big vinyl collections. And we were searching and searching and searching. And what was really interesting is that um, people don't realize this, but Bowie and I, when we first met, the very first conversation we had was only about jazz. We didn't talk about pop music, dance music, rock and roll, nothing. We only spoke about jazz. And when we listened, we only listened to jazz recordings. And that was the thing that was... Um, it, it's It's interesting how you could take something that seems abstract. In, in the world of David Bowie, 
that's completely normal. I just had to learn the way that he saw things. So by the time he walked to my apartment and had, he was holding the, the, the picture behind his back when I, when he knocked on my door and, uh, <laughs> and he just, as soon as I opened the door, he didn't even say hello. He just went, you know, like almost as if we were prospectors and we discovered gold. He was like, poof, this is it. Nah, darling, this is what I want my record. Now, just remember, this is a picture. This is what I want my record to sound like. So this was something that I was looking at, but he wanted it to sound like what I was looking at. I instantly knew what David meant. When you see this picture of Little Richard, and I've actually tried to find it. I don't know where the hell he got it from. But um, when I tried to find this picture again, I can't seem to find it. But uh, the picture looked as if it was shot that morning. And this was 1982, the end of 1982. Now, you could tell from the car and the clothing that it was probably the late 50s or early 60s. Um, the the year of the Cadillac had the bullet tail lights and the whole bit. Right. So you could tell that it was a late 50s or early 60s photo, but it still looked modern. And basically what David was saying was that he wanted an evergreen record. He wanted a record that if you played it today, meaning you and I are here face to face, and we went and we listened to Let's Dance, it should sound to you as if, if you never heard it before, it should sound to you like we cut it that morning. Right. And and I got all of that from that one picture because I now knew how David saw the world. And as a producer, my job is to learn what you want and how to achieve that. And that's a very difficult job because sometimes it takes more than words. You have to hang out with a person. You have to look at them. You have to study them. You have to look at their history. How did they get to where they were? Um, and that's that's what I think, if, if you can call it a gift, and maybe it's a craft, but I think that that's the greatest gift I have is that I've learned how to see the world through my artist eyes. Wow. I think that'll be a very poignant thing for people to hear back, especially considering the records that you created with that particular individual there, exactly as, as you described. And I think that's a beautiful nature of, of making hits of uh, a level to which there's a legacy involved. You know, I think legacy hits are remarkable and you're responsible for a number of them, which makes it even more interesting. But uh, those, those particular records specifically are some of the first I was ever introduced to and very much are an instance of being able to put them on now. And they do have that that remarkable power of just suddenly being timeless, which is essentially, I think, what what we're all looking for in, in art in general is this sense of timelessness as opposed to creating something for the zeitgeist instead, having this this beautiful spectrum on which there's there's no level of judgment based on thinking, that's very much the sound of this time. So we could compartmentalize right. that into there. <laughs> Um, it's also risky, though, to do that. And, of course. and I'm the first one to acknowledge that, um, you know, um, when, when, you're, when you're trying to make an artist's next record, and, and, I, and I always explain it this way, that I always look at the artist, um, their sort of, tra their growth 
trajectory, their developmental trajectory. And it, you can sort of forensically look and say, ah, this is where the B-52s are now. How did they get there? Where will they be if we get this right? And that's what I tried to do. I said, hmm, I'm a B-52s fan, so this is relatively easy because I get it. And then when I talked to them and I could see the world through their eyes and I realized, oh my God, yeah, not only do I understand their musical and artistic arc, but things have changed. The person who used to be the drummer now has to be the guitar player because the guitar player is dead. And in order to play guitar on a B-52s record, you have to have certain tunings and certain styles that are not common. Um, what do you do? <laughs> what do you do as a producer? How do you learn that and encourage that and make them the best B-52s they could be at that time with the person who was most responsible for their compositions missing? Like, how do you feel, fulfill that role and how do you fill that role? I think a beautiful part of what you actually said was also the ability to study the characters that you're working with and understanding them on, on a molecular level about what makes them tick and how that affects your ability to be able to create art as a whole. And I think that's a major part of, of art making, regardless of which discipline you choose, your ability to observe not only your subject matter, but also the recipients of, mm -hmm. of that, whether that be the, the onlookers, whatever it might be, to be able to have a rounded vision of that ultimately is what creates wonderful art because it's 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 in the artist's ability to truly be able to read the situation and deliver what it is that's that's necessary for that moment i i i, I think you see that a lot from russian composers from yeah, yes uh, you know from from their absolute prime rachmaninoff being a great example of right. that uh truly understood how to almost like a synesthesia situation take the the feeling of what was the country that he lived in at that time right. and recreate that as, a, as an audio piece that was then very 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 blatant in its ability to read what what the strengths of those uh, emotions were it's it's really to me it's it's really interesting um because i have this incredible love of russian composers and and i think that it's almost like um i compare it in the classical world to the jazz fusion world. Like when the John McLaughlin's came along and, um, and people like that, they were standing on the shoulders of these giants that had, you know, had developed all of this cool stuff. So they got to start from a point where uh, music had already developed to a certain level. So they could interpret music like in the here and now for the future. It was amazing. It's just like, you know, people ask me who my favorite composer is, and I say, Prokofiev. <laughs> and they're like, yeah. really? And I say, yeah, well, Prokofiev and James Brown too. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and there really is a linkage. There is that that sort of intellectual primal linkage. Um, the, the great Russian composers, uh, the music is so primal and so fantastic. It speaks to your soul in a strange way um, where you don't have to have the intellectual 
um, background, let's say, that, that you would have to have to understand other classical composers that are like, say, from the Renaissance. Um, you know, it, they just, it's just a different thing. I don't want to get into a whole of thing about it, but it really, it's cool that you, uh, that you recognize that. that. That's awesome. So in regards to slightly more modern composers, did you ever get to meet Lenny Bernstein in his prime? Because I know both of you are New Yorkers. And... No, I didn't. It's incredible. I mean, it's, it's funny. Um, uh, no, there's so many amazing composers and, and, and conductors and people that I have met, uh, but so many that I did meet because when I was really young, um, I was just coming up and I was at that age where, um, I was exploring music. So even though I started out as a classical musician, um, because as a hormonal teenager, it was, you know, hippie music and, you know, and funk and soul and, and all of these things collided almost like planets out in space. And they would collide. And the byproduct of that collision, that point of impact was it just it was like all of these things were hitting my brain at the same time right. uh, uh the day that i i went from listening to nothing but classical music playing in the in my school symphony orchestra and listening to r&b and in one day i got turned on to the doors first album and all of this sort of surf music and hippie music and in one day and and I dropped acid with Timothy Leary, and it was incredible. At 14 years old, I was like, shh. And I came back home two days later. My grandmother was freaking out. Where have you been? Uh, and, and my speech pattern had changed. I, I had gone from being this very polite kid to like, oh, wow, Granny, you know, it's cool, man. You know, everything is fine. You know, it's far out. And she was looking at me like, what the hell happened to him? Um and that's what it was like. It was like planets colliding, and all of a sudden, there's like this this new little asteroid that broke off. I was that new little asteroid that was a result of that that sort of collision of worlds, um, that a world that I didn't even know existed, you know, smashed into me, and all of a sudden, it uh, it left an imprint on me, um, which resulted in me buying a Fender Stratocaster a few years later, like everything, you know, like one thing led to the next. So if a person were to forensically study Nile Rodgers and look at my developmental arc, um, you could see how I went from being a classical musician, uh, only loving bebop and jazz when I was younger, that was my world. Um, and then uh, <laughs> this what I call hippie happenstance that I just happened to meet this guy, Dr. Timothy Leary. I didn't know who he was. I didn't know what LSD was. I didn't know anything about that culture. And the next thing you know, I'm immersed in it with the man who's like the dude. <laughs> it's like the, the, the James Brown of hippieism. Um, and uh, all of a sudden my life changes. So then now uh, who am I starting to uh, 
look at. I'm starting to look at groups like Love. I'm starting to look at The Doors. And then this guy named Hendrix comes along and it just totally blows all our minds and takes us to a different place. And to this day, that influences in all of my music, the classical um, influence. I wrote a few weeks ago with Frank Moody uh, a, um, a pop song, a dance record uh, based on... Um, dance of the sugar plum fairy and it's great it's like fantastic <laughs> i came in and we played it and they looked at me and went what you we can do this and i was like sure you know like it'll sound cool and we started with that and they couldn't believe that i could play it on electric guitar classical style and it sounded really cool and the next thing you know it turned into an original composition of course you'll hear those elements and as a matter of fact we actually end the record with the the original composition upon which it, wow. which it's based but uh i'm sorry i'm like no 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 going off into my own see this is this is the nail <laughs> i remember which is that there's constant digression to the point where you're really in the bowels of i think what makes you the individual that you are but to wrap it up based on the time sensitivity yeah sorry about that it's man. all good no 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 no. i i mean i could do this for hours trust me um you mentioned your strat yeah still the original it's still yeah 1972 so I, that's a 1959 strat that i bought in 1972 73 we were um opening for the jackson five we were filling in for a group called the ojs and uh yeah it was 73 and um that's when I bought it, and I still play it to this day. And you see me treating it like <laughs> it was laid on the floor. And I think that was somewhat surprising, just seeing you <laughs> dump it like that on the sofa. Is everything still original on there? How much? Uh, no, and it, it's uh, so the actual uh, main part of the guitar is original. The body and the neck, um, and the electronics. Uh, it's just the superficial stuff that I've changed. So, yeah, the scratch yeah. plate, of yeah. course, uh, the speed knobs, because in the R&B days at that point, when I first started playing R&B, uh, there was a technique where you control the volume knob. The most famous thing is the beginning of Marvin Gaye's Let's Get It On when it goes, well, 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 I've been really trying. But, you know, yeah. so you do that with your finger yeah. pushing the volume knob up. Now they have volume pedals, but in those days I couldn't afford one, so you just put the speed knobs on the guitar. And that was the thing. I still do it to this day. When we play Get Lucky, we do this whole thing at the beginning of Get Lucky, the way we interpret it, because we interpret the first part of it as a ballad. Um, and, uh, and I do the old speed knob trick. I love that that's a legitimate technique, though. See, I mean, when you came from an era that you did where there wasn't the basis of having a machine to do it for you, you ultimately did have to learn the technique or, or invent the technique yeah, more so, yeah. which was even more impressive, I think, when these things didn't exist uh, and you didn't necessarily have the aid of automation or auto-tune or quantizing. Right. You, you actually to, had to play the record. Yeah, you listen to a record and you figure out, how the hell did they do that? Right. Like, I was uh, listening to a uh, Diana Ross record. Um uh, uh, reflections on reflections there's a part where it sounds like an early synthesizer and then you look at the date of the record and you go there was no synthesizer how the hell did they do that and I kept thinking about it I kept thinking about it I said I got it somebody played a guitar with humbucking pickups and then what you do is you 
depress the strings really close to the pickups and it makes it sound like birds. And if you put it in the right um, uh, echo, all of a sudden you hit this thing that sounds like a synthesizer. But it wasn't. A, there was no synthesizer in those days. There were no tone generators that you could right. make that kind of noise, or at least no one would think of doing it. Yeah, that's a really remarkable factor, I think, of the music that that came from the era that you've been through is that so much of it is purely organic and it was very much just a situation of people sitting in the studio and conceptualizing right. and playing and playing and running through this amp with this amp with this amp and this mic and whatever might have come from that right. and then creating these masterpiece sounds which could not be recreated right. and, until now where you can buy like a MIDI right. keyboard that has everything on it <laughs> absolutely uh, which, which is amazing and somewhat tragic in its own right but uh, I'm going to wrap up here because All right, uh, I know you got you got to rush off, but um, it's been a pleasure. Thank, Thank you very you, much. Good seeing you again, bro. Indeed, I'd love to get into more of this further down the road. I'll, uh, I'll be around. I'm I'm at Abbey Road all the time now, so uh, this yeah. is my place. Yeah, I feel like it's a second home to you. Yeah, it is amazing. Well, thank you so much. You got it, bro. Peace. Take it easy. <laughs>